I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. My guest is the sculptor Andy Goldsworthy. Andy's sculptures are made out of wood, stone, ice, leaves, water, and mud, and can last anywhere from a few seconds to hundreds of years. Andy lives in Scotland, but his work has been exhibited widely in the United States, including at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, Stanford and Princeton Universities, and the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art in California. Welcome. Thank you very much. You spend so much of your time working outdoors, and I'm wondering what your relationship with the outdoors was when you were growing up. As a kid, oh wow! I, you know, I had a regular sort of uh, time as a child. You know, I played in woods and uh, on the beach. Uh, I don't remember making many sculptures as a as a as a kid, but art was always very important to me. That was the only thing I could do. That's the only thing I was made for was to make art. It was the um, driving passion through all my education. Were your parents artists? No, my uh, my mother looked after us kids, and my father was a professor, a university professor of mathematics. Where did you grow up? I grew up on the outskirts of Leeds, which is a big city in the north of England. On one side was the city, and on the other side were the fields, the green belt, as they called it. So it's this really interesting edge between between the two, and I think that had, probably had a big effect on the way I see things. Walking through the new suburbs. I always remembered where the trees were, where the swamps were, where the, and I could, you know, it's just underneath this veneer of of tarmac and building, the swamps and the and the trees were still there somehow. And I think that definitely informs how I look at the urban spaces now. It's like trying to get through the surface appearance of things to what is the you know the nature of an urban place. When did it first occur to you that you wanted to have a career in this type of sculpture? Well, I think career is probably the wrong word to use for an artist. You make art, and if a career happens through that, then great. But when you sign up for art, you could be signing up for um, working as a part-time gardener or whatever, just to support support your work and have live on a in a very very have a very frugal uh, life in terms of uh, material things. Uh, but obviously have a fantastic life in terms of what you gain through what you make. I am very, very fortunate to be able to have both, you know, that I can make a living from my work. But you haven't always had both. Absolutely not, no. When I was a student, I lived off very little, and uh, when I left college, I lived off very little too. And for the first eight years, it was um, it was like that, and I worked as a part-time gardener and other things. You also worked on a farm. How did farming inform your work at all? That was very important. For the farming is a very sculptural activity, you know, the way haystacks are made, uh, the, the plowing of a field. And it's also a very at times a very brutal experience being on a farm. The the there's a, in the the death the, of animals, the the rawness of working with the land, the weather, the the harshness of it, as well as an intense. It was a very powerful powerful experience. When you're picking potatoes all day long, or uh, picking wild oats from a field of oats, uh, um, stacking bales, you do these long, repetitive tasks, and you build up a certain working rhythm, and that helps enormously when I'm making sculptures. It implies a sense of patience in a way to be able to do the same thing and tolerate that over and over again. 
do you, do you feel intellectually stimulated by picking to p- potatoes or doing your sculptures? That's an interesting. That's an interesting question. I mean, I I, I, I don't I don't consider myself to be incredibly patient. I'm very determined. P- patience is something to do with knitting. It's like it's too intense to describe it in that way. The unpredictability and and very tedious and repetitive. Where does this come from? Were you always, as a child, a hardworking, intense individual? Um, well, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't considered particularly gifted uh, academically, and I did pretty badly at, in, in a lot of the subjects at school, except for art. I'd have always done art with a certain obsessiveness. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you made money from your art? Yeah, I was in. I was shortly after left art, art school. The um, at that time, the Arts Council of Britain uh, used to buy art and make an exhibition every year, and it was a great honour for the. The, the, the perch that year was a, 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 a Dr. Andrew Causey, who was um, at Manchester University, and he bought some early photographs of mine. And uh, I'll never forget it because he had to talk me up to £30. What do your photographs go for these days? Do you know, I have no idea. I, I, imagine, I imagine a few thousand dollars, but not huge. I mean, this is a really stupid kind of... I mean, I mean you, how many people have you interviewed that said, <laughs> said just said what I've just said? Uh, I mean, obviously, I do care. I'm sure there's some... I have files somewhere will tell me exactly how much they paid. I want to talk about the themes in your art. One theme that's recurring is the sense of time. How did the sense of time come into play, or how does the sense of time come into play with your work for some listeners who aren't aware of your work? Well, when I first began working outside, the very, one of the very earliest works that I made outside on the, on the beach uh, was made uh, in many ways as a reaction to the static studio that I uh, was supposed to be working in as a student. Uh, which I found incredibly difficult to work with. It's this this place that didn't change, typically a white cube that uh, students are given to work in. So you were met with these very contrasting images and experiences. You know, the college was very confined, very closed, very controlled, and this beach, which was different every day. And one day I just went out and made a, a couple of things on the beach, and uh, the tide came in and washed them away, and I suddenly realized that I wasn't in control and time was dictating uh, what I should make, how I could make it. And many of the earlier works were made for the mom- uh, were made for the moment in which they were made. And then later on, I began to realize that moment is the way it is because of what has happened before. And then time became even more important. I mean, then I began to think of the future too. For instance, making a stone cairn on the beach, waiting for the tide to come in and, and, and engulf it. You talk about a stone cairn, C-A-I-R-N. Mm-hmm. Although my cairns don't look like any other cairn that's ever been made, they're, they're, they are, my cairns are often, uh, they look more like a, more like a pine cone. I like to call them cans because I like this association to uh, marking a moment, a place, a journey. To me, they look like eggs and they have that fragility sometimes when they are part of uh, the beach and they might be torn down by the tides. I do not see stone as something static or dead. I try to see it as something alive and living. What do you mean by there is an inner life in stone? Well, I don't mean in some slight kind of hippie sort of yaya way. Uh, stone, uh, you know, you look at the granite of, of uh, Manhattan, you know, that's a fire-formed material, you know, and you go into Central Park and you see where it's exposed and revealed. It's, there's a certain flow and movement and 
a sense of change about that, even though it is solid. You know, I've actually made sculptures where I've fired stones, taken solid stones and fired them in a kiln and seen them turn liquid. Very violent, but it's, it's very, very powerful to see this stone tearing apart. Did the kiln break? Uh, my uh, well, uh, my 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 uh, my uh, 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 father-in-law at the time, uh, he was a potter, and uh, I borrowed his kiln in the early days. And uh, yes, one of the um, I, I wrecked a kiln. By the way, when you would go home during school to work on the beach, what did your teachers think of that? Was there any controversy surrounding that? Um, yeah, it was a little. It was a little difficult for the uh, tutors. I was rejected from three art colleges before I got in one at the end. I had more or less given up going to art school. I was going to go and be an artist. I was going the, the direct route. I wasn't going to bother with, with this. So for my father being in universities, rang round and found a place. He drove me for my interview. And I was the last but one person to be uh, accepted at Lancaster Art College. Now, all those rejections were really, really kind of a bit of a shock. But they, they make, they change you dramatically. And through that process of rejection, I became very, very independently minded. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is the sculptural artist Andy Goldsworthy. Are most of your innovations by accident? Or in, are they in, intuition is incredibly important. And the ephemeral work made outside for the moment, for the day, is made in the spirit of experimentation, I make an awful lot of bad work. There are things that go wrong. You know, things go wrong, uh, can fail. It's important that they do fail. And that is the food. That's the lifeblood of my work. And it is driven by intuition. Your work and your, at least in the early days, ability to live so frugally implies a, a rich spiritual life. What religion are you? None. I was brought up a Methodist. My father, mother and father were Methodist, but I'm, I'm not religious. What I do has a, has a spiritual content to it. I mean, the, the feeling for place, understanding of a place and my place and my relationship to the people who've been there before me, the people who will come after me. I just recently did a, a work for the Yorkshire Sculpture Park containing a large flat-bedded rock. I lay down on the rock. It began to snow. I got up and left a shadow. And that stone has been laid on there as an invitation for others to lay on the rock and leave their shadow. And I like this sense of the stone becoming ingrained with the memory of the people who've laid upon it. What about the physical toll that your work has on you? I'm trying to look at your hands. Can I see your hands? <laughs> you haven't had a manicure in a while. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never had a manicure in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see them again. Put them on the table. Um, well, that one, that, that kind of squash finger there is from uh, working on the farm where I dropped the back of a trailer on it. Uh, I got one knuckle missing here from banging that. Uh, oh, I got a good one here from a, uh, a, piece, scar. Yeah, a piece of slate. In uh, that was We were doing a test, um, uh, t testing out the material for the National Gallery piece in Washington. I went to the quarries and that. That slipped slip me up there. But I mean, generally, they're not in bad condition considering what I do. You have a few books of your work, and one of your books is called Time. You talk about how you need the resistance of weather to help you work more. You like in the early afternoon when the day is the hottest, that's when you work best. 
Well, actually, that sentence came out of uh, initially, I hate the heat. I really dislike the heat. I'm much happier in a cold place. Heat is a problem for me. I get very hot. I don't know how to deal with it. And this was in the south of France. What I did was that I started working in the river. I actually sat in the river and made works, which was obviously cooler. So I started working in the river with these colored stones, making lines that gradated from gray to white to yellow to red. And I began painting with stones. And underneath the water, the water, the effects of the water made the the stones disappear, but the color rise out. So you you t- turned the stone to liquid color in, in the river. And that was best at the middle of the day when the sun was at its hottest because the sun was high and cast no shadow. So I turned what had originally been the most difficult time of the day in which for me to work to a, a, a sculpture that needed to be made at that time. That was a fantastic moment. And up till then in hot places, I start, I generally start getting up at four o'clock in the morning, working, retreating in the middle of the day, and then coming out at night again. And somehow I always feel that's not dealing with the place properly, you mm. know? Uh, so I do feel that if I can deal with it head on, at its most difficult, and make a great work. That is how it should be. So there's that physical challenge for you. Oh, I need that. I can, when I'm in a gallery or work doing installations inside, I, I can only work for so long before I, it, it, the, the energy begins to drain out. I want to talk about this sense of reversing nature. And what I'm thinking of is you're bringing these giant snowballs into the middle of London on a summer day. What inspires you to do that sort of thing? The snowballs were, were left on the streets of London on Midsummer's, uh, Midsummer's Day. We put them out on the streets in the middle of the night so nobody knew how they got there. So, what were people's reactions? Um, well, there was a disbelief that it was snow, and then um, I actually held a press conference that morning. I knew I would be fighting for the life of the snowball, so to speak, <laughs> uh, and 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 that they could have lasted ten minutes. People could have just uh, you know attacked them, and uh, some of them lasted for uh, three or four days. Most of them survived for a lot longer than I thought they would. You have an important sense of place in your work. You did an exhibit at the Met, at the museum, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, where you imported 30 rocks from Scotland to the rooftop of the Met. How come you just didn't use 30 rocks that you found, let's say, in Central Park? Um, there are occasions where, you know, generally speaking, I like to work with the material that I find in a place. That's, that's interesting. Also, also important to me is not just the rocks that I find, but movement and journeys and materials and and also people take. And this this journey from Europe to America is is one that I do a lot, but it's got a long history to it, especially from Scotland. And granite and granite bowls, it's, it's Scottish granite, but there's you know granite below you in the park. So I wanted to make that c- connection. I want to talk about your personal life for a moment. You are divorced. I am divorced, yeah. How many children do you have? I've got four kids. What impact does the work have on your personal life? Well, it is my personal life. You know, It has no no boundaries to the making of our time. It, it, it encroaches or enriches, depends how you look on it, on everything that I do. You're married to it. Yeah, yeah. Where do you source your inspiration? 
when I went to Bradford Art School, there was a lot of performance and happenings works. You know, people out there on the streets doing works on predictable things, which really informed me an awful lot. This idea of art being out of the out of the studio in real places and the unpredictability of that. And and nature has always been. And nature is not for me this kind of pastoral idyll that it's it's often perceived to be. The subject of nature is is something that is is supposed to be quaint and and pretty. I mean, for nature for me has always been very raw and harsh and brutal and beautiful too. Mm. It's been the most difficult subject matter, not the easy option that people like to think of it sometimes. You were also inspired by graves at St Patrick's Church somewhere in England. Didn't you take pieces of ice from the the, the graves? On occasion, I did. Yeah, but they would they would uh, freeze over, and every so often, I'd try and lift an entire human shadow. You know, this kind of shape up. The shape of that informed uh, a, a work nearby when I was uh, where I was asked to do a, a. It was a private commission. I built three human-sized chambers for people to step into uh, on top of this uh, very bleak uh, moor. The more people who step into this chamber, the more ingrained it will become with the memory of the people who stepped in there. And mm. uh, it is a place that's personally very important to me. But from that place, I could see the Morecambe Bay where I made my very first works. I could see the Morecambe where I uh, was a student. I could see the church at Caton where I got married because my ex-wife's village was there. I could see another couple of villages that I'd lived in. So there were all these places that I'd been in, had a relationship with, but was no longer there. And it was this sense that even though I'm not there, I still am connected to those places that I've left a presence there. How do you think you'll be entombed? Uh, you know, we're talking about graves, and there's a picture of you in one of your books throwing sand up in the air and just seeing wherever it would land, and it, it reminds me of cremated ashes. I'm wondering if you ever thought about that for yourself. Um, well, I, I have my father's ashes, which I'm, I'm going to make a throw from those um, at some point. But at the moment, I'm, uh, it's in my will that I be buried uh, next to the cairn that I made outside of Pempont, the village from where I live. And this mm. work was made in response. The village asked me to make a millennium sculpture, and it's, it stands there as a guardian to the village. So I, I would like to be buried uh, next to that. Mm. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me. My guest has been Andrew Goldsworthy. If you'd like to learn more about the show, please visit our website at fromscratchradio.com or follow us on Twitter at Jess G. Harris or find us on Facebook. I'm Jessica Harris, and this is From Scratch. From Scratch.